Deep inside, we know that it'll cost us something to open up our lives and share our faith. But this is our call, to open our lives and to share Christ with the people close to us. That's why we're running Alpha. It's a course over several weeks where you can invite your friends to explore life's biggest questions over a meal. It's a chance for you to invite that person into an honest conversation about faith. Alpha, who will you invite? Well, today we're asking the question, what is the purpose of the church? This month we've been looking at things that have to do with our restoration and our renewal. Um, Starting a new year, you are motivated to ask questions like, what could I do differently? What could I do better? What could I start doing? What could I stop doing? What should I keep doing? And we've been asking questions about those things that help us do that, Uh, specifically about our faith. And so we're asking you the question today, what is the purpose of the church? What comes to your mind when you hear that question? If somebody said to you, hey, what's the purpose of the church? Would you say, well, I just wake up so early on Sunday mornings, I have have nothing else to do, so I go to church. Or, well, I grew up going to church and I just go to church. Or, you know, good question. I I stopped going to church. I, I don't really have a need to go to church. Or, well, because of the pandemic, I'm not really involved much in my church. Or what would be the, 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 the answer that would come to your mind? So I want to give you a context today, a, a, a biblical theological context uh, for why the church matters. What is the purpose of the church? And the first big idea would be this. The church is God's initiative and plan. The church is God's initiative and plan which might come as a surprise to you. You might think, well, gee, didn't the church sort of spring out of a bunch of people getting together and deciding to launch something that became the church? No, it was actually initiated and part of God's plan. And so we see in Ephesians 1, uh, verses 22 to 23, and then in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 to 11. And and lots of books in the Bible. I'm just picking a, a, a couple passages that might give us a context It says, and God placed all things under Christ and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What? Who are these rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms? And you might think, okay, I'm, I'm good with you up to that point. God placed all things under Christ, appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. And his body represents the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold, the complete, the multifaceted wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. Who are the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms? Uh, Perhaps you've heard the phrase, we fight not against um, earthly powers, we fight against principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. What is that referring to? Well, we don't really quite know. We know it refers generally to created beings, created things, entities, structures 
that are in opposition to God. Uh, all of us as human beings are curious, well, what's beyond this life? What's beyond this world? What, what's out there? In fact, some people become obsessed with the occult, uh, a preoccupation with uh, contacting the dead, uh, contacting and somehow finding powers, spiritual powers out there that they think will help them. Seances, uh, Ouija boards, uh, horoscopes, all these ways that people try to harness these spiritual energies that they don't believe God himself adequately responds to or can help them enough. And so we're, we're preoccupied with that. In fact, lots of cultures would say we have to placate the dead. Uh, we have to honor the dead, not just in some symbolic way, gee, thank you for what you've done, but they exist, they live, they determine the events of my actual life. This is true in lots of cultures. Uh, and so these rulers and authorities, we don't get a lot of details about them, but we know that they're significant and they're serious. And so God launches the church, first of all, by proclaiming to these powers out there what he's going to do. This is what I'm going to do. You're on notice. This is my plan. So God has initiated and planned the church. Uh, and, and there's four things that immediately come out of that to me. Uh, one is that God created an eternal community. Again, I think of the church generally as, well, okay, it's the church. It exists on earth. Well, apparently, from God's perspective, the church is an eternal community. It's the, the church, the body of Christ, a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual movement of God's initiative announcing His kingdom on earth. Embracing every tribe and nation, a promised new humanity. This is the larger context for the church. That's stunning. And then God calls people to come join him by faith, and he saves us to be reborn. Uh, we talk about being born again, uh, sanctified, set apart for God's purposes, uh, equipped, given gifts uh, that we can use to serve the body of Christ. Uh, so that we can be alive in Christ. And he produces in us the fruit of his spirit and gives each of us spiritual gifts to bless and build up the church and people in his name. So the church is this called out community, ecclesia. You've heard the term ecclesiastical, ecclesiastic. It has to do with the church. Ecclesia, uh, from the Greek word kaleo, to call. So ecclesia, he calls out from the world and this community of people from every tribe and nation, and informs them into a family, a body, a household of God. And then God forms us through beliefs and values and practices and virtues, empowered by His Word, the Word of God, the proclaimed written Word of God, what we call the Bible, and His Holy Spirit, who gives us power to understand the Word of God and to achieve God's purposes. These are expressed in things like worship, gathering to worship God, not just attending worship, but entering into worship of God as a community. A fellowship where we, we gather to relate to one another in the context of this faith that we now share because of God's initiative. Uh, through ministry and mission, those are just terms that talk about how do we use our gifts and how we use our gifts uh, to serve one another and to serve people beyond the body of Christ in the name of Christ so that God is honored and glorified and people are blessed. So this idea of an ecclesia, a called out people, formed into a household, an oikos, the Greek word for household, the basis for our word economy, there's an economic value uh, to, uh, to being part of this community, not just in terms of money, but in terms of all the value it calls out of people and, and, and releases through people. We're a temple, 
uh, we're a body of Christ. It's all these wonderful metaphors and, and analogies to talk about this organic movement of God's Spirit that we get to be a part of. And so God brings us together, sends us into the world to proclaim, teach, and demonstrate His gospel, that is, His good news, His kingdom, generation to generation, until He returns in glory to raise the dead, to judge the world, and to establish a new heaven and earth. So these are some implications that come out of this first big idea that God has initiated the church and that the church is, is an intentional plan from God Himself announced to the powers and principalities beyond which we can access uh, and made real to us who live in four dimensions. And <laughs> let me take a little physics pause here. Uh, we live in four dimensions. Uh, it's a three-dimensional world, right? And then the fourth dimension would be time. It seems like we're moving through time in three dimensions. Well, this, this world, this universe uh, that God has created is more than four dimensions. Uh, that's why God is outside of time. God's not contained by his creation, by three dimensions. These powers and principalities exist outside of our four dimensions. Uh, and so physics speaks to this in some interesting ways, right? Quantum physics d describes very small processes. Um, uh, and then Einstein's theory of relativity speaks to larger processes, but they don't come together. Uh, they're not integrated. And so the big quest in physics is to say, well, how does this get reconciled? And, and part of that is through things like string theory. And, and so at this point uh, in, in current physics thinking, there's 11 dimensions, not four dimensions. And so this amazing and wonderful thing that God has done, is doing, and will do is all happening really simultaneously. We just don't have access to it. And so in the dimensions that we don't have access to, God has announced his plan and described his initiative in Christ. And then, of course, within the, the dimensions that we inhabit, he's making that real. I hope I haven't lost you at this, that point. But this is how profound it is. This work of God is all-encompassing. It's comprehensive. And so the first idea being that God's initiative and plan make this possible leads us to the second big idea, which is this. The church is a work in progress comprised of imperfect people being transformed by Christ in their midst, given a transforming message from Christ. So we're, we're a work in progress, and we're also an easy target for conflict. Why? Because, again, we're fallible human beings. We're people who at one point were enemies of Christ, actively or, or, or benignly. We were in opposition to Christ, resisting him, defended against him, either ignorant of him or indifferent toward him. And now while we're yet enemies, Christ has died for us. He's called us into this community. We're now being transformed by him. But we're still people in progress. And that's why it's easy to, to, to mock the church and say, oh, it's a bunch of hypocrites. Well, yeah. It's a bunch of people who are now learning how to be responsive to the living God who has not only created us, but is saving us, redeeming us. So the church is a, is a work in progress and an easy target for conflict. People disregard, people disrespect, people desert, divide, distort, and dishonor the church. And I'm talking about people who are believers within the church. There's an enemy within, right? Not that we should regard anybody as an enemy, but in my own conflicted state, I'm a disruptive presence in the church, as are you, because we have needs, wants, and aspirations that are not necessarily always compatible with other people. And so it's, it's the case that the church is this mess of motives 
and behaviors that are confounding when you say, well, I thought this was supposed to be different. Why would you have um, pedophiles in the church? Well, because you have pedophiles anywhere else in, in the human order of things. Uh, why are there people who are self, acting out of self-interest in the church? Well, because that's how people act in all kinds of spheres. And so it, it's easy to, then, to mock the church or distrust the church, uh, to, be, to, to be disappointed by our expectations for it and our experience of it. Can you relate to this? I'm sure you can. You can probably say, yeah, well, somebody at church hurt my feelings, or the church is doing things I don't like. Um, I don't go to that church anymore uh, because of these reasons. This is the quandary uh, of being the church. Because it's a work in progress, it's not perfected yet. It will be perfected, but not yet. We're in progress, we're not perfected yet. And therefore, this conflict that exists in all aspects of of human life is present also in the church. And, and, and Paul spoke to this. The Apostle Paul said, you know, there's, there's people with all kinds of mixed motives that are actually trying to co-opt the church for their own purposes. He described them this way in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11. He said, such people are false prophets, deceitful workers. He says, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Paul was talking to, to the Corinthians about specific conflicts that they were having with people who were teaching false doctrine, things that were not true according to God's word, things that didn't honor and glorify God and didn't bless people, but were their own selfish agendas. And this is a very big issue. You see this in all of Paul's letters. He's addressing these kinds of issues. It's not just the people outside the church, the Roman authorities who are threatened by it, or others uh, who would say, I don't really believe that, or I don't need that. But it's people who have actually, in, at least in their, in their uh, words, have said, I, am, I'm a, I embrace this. And so this is a serious, serious conundrum. Uh, how can people in the church still be evil? Well, this is human nature. If we choose not to grow, we inevitably find ourselves at cross purposes with God, and that's what it means to be evil. All of us have the capacity for evil, not all of us ultimately act on it. Uh, there was a writer, a famous psychiatrist, who wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled. Uh, Scott Peck was his name. He's now deceased. But he was a brilliant psychiatrist. He had all the benefit of phenomenal education and um, success in life. And at, at one point he wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled, which became an amazing runaway bestseller. As that book uh, was being lauded and celebrated in the culture, being, it, was a, it was a big, big... Um, uh, had a big impact in the culture, in American culture. Meanwhile, in his practice, he was bumping into people who didn't seem to respond to treatment. And he saw that these people were resistant to growth. And in fact, he saw them doing things that would not fit any category just of, of pathology. But he finally said, I've got to come to terms with the fact that these people are evil. It wasn't just a judgment. This was a professional observation of these people who have defied any kind of growth and the very um, attitudes that they hold and the behaviors that they express are antithetical uh, to anybody's value system. Uh, and so his second book, Following the Road Less Traveled, was People of the Lie. And he discovered that oftentimes evil lurks in the church. Why? I said before, well, people are, inf are fallible. They're not perfect. But also, it's, it's convenient for people to masquerade behind righteousness, to hide behind righteousness. And this is what Paul was experiencing with the Corinthians. 
So is it any wonder that non-believers would avoid or ignore, mock, criticize, or mistrust the church? Because well, what difference does it make to go there? Well, it's a big difference if you take a closer look and realize, yes, um, why, are there, why are there evil people in the church? Well, because it's a convenient place to hide. And under the cover of, well, I'm a church attender, uh, represent oneself as I'm, I'm, I'm a person who is growing in Christ when they weren't. Only the, only the Lord knows our heart, right? So as we start to watch our own behavior, uh, Paul said to young Timothy, his protege, watch your life and doctrine closely. Are you saying one thing and doing another? Uh, or are you, are you saying what you intend and aspire to be and you're recognizing the fact that you're in process getting there? Or is this just a subterfuge to fake people out? It's easy to be disappointed by our expectations or experiences of the church starting with our own, our own commitments or lack thereof. So the change has to start with us, right? We have to see ourselves as a work in progress. And as we, as we find ourselves being conflicted, like Paul found himself conflicted, I don't do what I should do, I, I do what I shouldn't do, we confess. Hey, here's where I am. We repent. Here's where I want to go. Here's who I want to be. We, we submit ourselves talked about this a couple weeks ago. Be still and know that I am God. It means surrender. We surrender ourselves to God and His purposes for us in this community of, of, of fellow travelers with Christ. So the church at its best is a bunch of people saying uh, I am going to be vulnerable enough to be humble enough to confess who I really am. Hoping that you will accept me as I am and that in Christ through your prayers and, and, the, and the power of the Holy Spirit, I will move from where I am to where I know the Lord wants me to go. We're going to explore this in the weeks ahead. So here's the thing, though. If this is the situation that the church is so conflicted and is such a mess at so many levels, and so disparaged by people who once were part of it and have left it, or people in the culture who don't want anything to do with it, what do we conclude? Well, we come back to that first point, that God has initiated the church as his plan to deliver the goods. So this is what we come down to. God stands with his church. He has not rejected, nor will he reject his church. His church will never be destroyed because God stands with it. God is committed to it. Not covering up all the ugliness, but saying, I'm going to speak to that. As I'm, as I'm intending to speak to every human heart. So the church is God's plan A, there's no plan B. The church will prevail. Uh, what does this mean? What are the implications of this? Well, leaving the church isn't a strategy, it's a tragedy. Leaving the church isn't a strategy. Well, it's such a mess, I'm going to leave. Well, that might seem strategic. You might have superficially dealt with whatever issue is bothering you. But it's a tragedy because you're cutting yourself off from one of the ways God delivers His grace his love, his truth, his transformational experience about being in community with Christ and his people. Where does one go? Where do you go? If you leave the church, where do you go? Jesus spoke to this in John chapter 6. Many, many of his disciples uh, walked away from him, no longer followed him. Hundreds of people said, I'm done. You don't live up to my expectations. You're not delivering on what I thought you would deliver. You don't have what it takes for what I want and need. I'm out. So Jesus turned to his own disciples and said, uh, you do not want to leave too, do you? You're still here. Would you rather leave? Do you want to go and join those who've left? Simon Peter said this, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where will we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So the church is not just a bunch of broken people. The church is the Holy One of God gathering people together, calling them to surrender to Him, to learn from Him, to be transformed by Him. So like all creation, the church will be redeemed in Christ. Every aspect of human endeavor, every aspect of human life needs to be redeemed, renewed, restored, rescued. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth, a new people for that heaven and that earth. And we see uh, Paul writing this to the Ephesians, describing Jesus' attitude toward the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He's describing the church as the bride of Christ. Now we can mock it and say, no, the church is the bride of Frankenstein, maybe. It's It's the bride of some monster, some monstrous bride. No. The church is the bride of Christ, his beloved bride. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's who we will be in Christ as we yield ourselves to him. This is what the church is meant to be. This is what every human organization and institution is meant to be. Every marriage is meant to bear the marks of Christ, transforming us and renewing us, presenting us as holy and blameless without stain, wrinkle, or blemish. Political structures, economic structures, any movement among people for a better version of life is rooted in the hope that God himself wants us to experience that. And it's God himself, the only one capable of allowing us, equipping us to experience that. This is the power that we talk about when God initiates this plan. It's the, it's the, it's the power that overcomes this, this fragmented and frail and fallible group called the church. And so the final point would be this. The church is all of us together in Christ now and forever. We're stuck with each other is when we look at it. Probably a better way of looking at it is to say we have the, the privilege of traveling together in Christ and seeing where he takes us, seeing the transformation that happens as each one of us and all of us together yield ourselves to the transforming power of Christ as we become, as, we become, as the Bible says, alive in Christ, as we grow up into the fullness of our maturity in Christ. It's only possible because of his presence in us. And so several implications of that, that the church is all of us together in Christ now and forever. The first being this, we must embrace our new identity and trust God for our development. Uh, Peter writes this in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, the stone who is rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to God, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen people. Let that sink in. You. You are a chosen person among a chosen people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special 
possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is your identity. And so embrace your identity in Christ. Trust him for your development as you yield yourself to him. Secondly, our identity is rooted in God's new community. It's not just a single individualistic process. He calls us individually and personally. He customizes this process to where we are and what we need. But he does it in the context of a community. Our identity is rooted in God's new community calling the best out in us. We can hope the best for ourselves, but it takes God through other people calling the best out of us. Hey, I believe in you. How can I help you become who you want to be? I believe in you not as I believe in God, but I believe in you as a person so beloved of God and I believe that God has committed himself to you. I want to be part of that process to speak into that, to do everything I can to encourage you as you grow in the fullness of him who calls you to special possession. And so the writer of Hebrews says it this way in chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, the very presence of God is that holy place, by a new and living way opened up for us through the the curtain, a, a living way, not just obeying laws, not just going through um, uh, formal you know, traditions and liturgies uh, and other kinds of things that, that have the semblance of being spiritual, but a living spirituality that made possible through God himself in us, he says, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Assurance of faith in him, not just in ourselves and our good intentions. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. It's the sign and the symbol of baptism. It's a symbol of, uh, of us dying to ourselves and being born again in Christ, raised up with him. And this curtain that he refers to, the, the curtain in the temple separated uh, the outer courts of the temple and, then the, and the inner courts of the temple from the actual holy of holies, the, the very center core of the temple. That, that, that curtain uh, has been swept aside by Christ. So he says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That's calling the best out in each other. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Encourage and courage is to strengthen our hearts. We have the power We have the the authority, we have the responsibility to encourage one another because there's a day coming, a day when life as we know it will be over. History is not a circle. There's an end point to history. And that end point um, is a new heaven and a new earth uh, where the dead will be raised, uh, judgment will occur. And so healthy church culture requires biblical theology, this foundation in God's word. And biblical means it's, it's in God's Word, in those words in the Bible, in Scripture. We see the makings for an understanding of how it all comes together. That's what theology is. It's taking all those words and ideas uh, in the Bible and, for, and, and seeing the pattern that they describe. 
is then saying, oh my gosh, the implications of these words would be this. And so we find in that unity of purpose, because in those words in the Bible, and as we start to understand how it all comes together, we see there's a unity of purpose. In all the diversity of the Bible, in all the diversity of the church, God has a unity of purpose for us. Not that we're all the same, but that we're uniquely us in Him, together in a way that is unified and whole. A whole building, a whole temple, a whole body. And so every healthy church uh, reveals this. They express it with their, their cultural styles and affinities in teaching and leading and mission and worship. It's okay to have this diversity of styles. And we may gravitate to a variety of church styles, all thriving within the church. Now, when I use the word church, I mean capital C, church, the church universal. But also we use the word church, small c, as the local expression of that. There's, there's one church in the world, one church it's Christ's church. And, and that church is comprised of lots and lots and lots of other churches. Stylistic differences, worship differences, different languages, different songs. And yet all of them rooted in the same word, expressing a similar theology, unified in purpose. And so we can gravitate to a variety of church styles and still be thriving within the church universal. And so our unity is rooted in our confession of faith. Jesus is Lord. Our confession of faith isn't, we can be saved, here's how. Lots of people offer that. Lots of people saying, oh, I, can, I know what you need, and I can provide it. Our confession of faith is this, Jesus is Lord, and therefore we can be saved, and here's how. That, that confession of faith makes all the difference. Jesus is Lord. I'm not invoking powers and principalities out there that I don't understand. I'm not trying to contact the dead. I'm not trying to manipulate spiritual powers. I'm submitting and yielding myself to the only power. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one church, one spirit. So Jesus says, my prayer as he prays for the disciples and at that last supper, he's talking now to God the Father. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. You see, he's talking about their message, which is a biblical theology. Here's how the Old and New Testament come together. Here's the message. Here's the purpose. And here's what unifies us in that purpose. This is the message that the, that the disciples, now apostles, carried forward. And that's what creates our unity in diversity. I love that um, our unity is, is also rooted in our character transformation as his disciples. So our, it's rooted in our identity, it's, it's, it's rooted and expressed in our confession of faith, and then it's rooted and expressed uh, and embodied in the transformation of our character. Those biblical values that comprise a biblical theology are the basis for a unity of purpose that transforms us. We embody those values. They're not just ideas out there, virtues out there, practices and beliefs out there. It's, it's what's in us the Holy Spirit. It's like what Martin Luther King said. Uh, I love this. He said this several times on uh, different occasions, but we know it best from his I Have a Dream speech. He said, I, I look to a day when people will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That's a beautiful expression of diversity. All those interesting cultural expressions 
They make life interesting and diverse. But the unity, the unity is character. That you could go into particularly any culture, any eth- ethnic group, any language group and say, wow, we're so different and yet there's a character trait that we share in Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. High regard for the truth. Humility, compassion, all these wonderful things are part of our character, expressed in a diverse variety of ways, culturally. And so diversity in the church means creatively expressing the same kingdom values. It's not just saying we need one of these, we need one of these, we need one of these, we need... We have a very superficial view of diversity in our culture. If we just get all these different people in the room, it'll, it'll be okay. We love diversity in all those ways that we think of diversity, but really the diversity we need is a diversity that expresses the same kingdom values. This is what C.S. Lewis said makes for a great friendship. When you meet somebody, and as you get to know them, you say, oh, you too. Oh, we share the same love of this, the same high regard for that. These values and virtues uh, resonate with both of us. And how wonderful it is when you meet people from uh, different backgrounds and, and, and presenting in different ways, and yet their character resonates with the kingdom of God, as does yours, and you think, this is a beautiful expression of unity and diversity. And so our goal, really, uh, is uh, in this unity and this biblical theology is expressed in our commitment to faithfully serve Christ together. How can we bless one another? How can we glorify God? How can we bless people that uh, are beyond our, our immediate fellowship, but who need what God alone can provide? And He uses us to deliver that. So no church uh, can meet all your needs, but, but every church is meant to help us grow as disciples. Let that sink in. No church, no pastor, no leader, no life group, as good as they all are, can meet all your needs. Only the Lord can. But a church, a healthy church, helps you grow as a disciple. Why? Because they have a biblical theology and unity of purpose. So the goal of the church isn't growing churches, it's growing people in Christ. (laughs) The goal of the church is not growing churches, it's growing people in Christ to be the church and express the church and to multiply the church wherever they go. Don't settle for being a consumer or critic of religious goods and services. It's too small. That that minimizes life. That marginalizes life. Don't be consumers and critics. Be colleagues, be co-laborers together in Christ. And then as we critique what we're doing, we do it in in a way that's very productive and helpful. Hey, how can we do that better? As we, as we enjoy the fruit of our labor and all the goodness that comes with being a community, we're consumers, but in the sense of saying, I thank God, I have gratitude in my heart for this wonderful thing I'm experiencing. But to simply reduce life to being a consumer or a critic of religious goods and services is a diminishment of you and it's a diminishment of the church. You don't settle for that. Your commitment to the mission of Christ Church, capital C, is what makes you alive and it makes every local church, small c, alive. So what we need at Lohe Community Church is for people to be committed to the kingdom of God, first and foremost, to the person of God and to his kingdom and to his church worldwide because then we'll get the very best from that person in terms of their impact and influence in the local church because they're coming to church, coming at church, participating in church from a much larger context than their own preferences or biases, needs, wants, and desires. 
But let's encourage one another in Christ, serving Him as the day approaches. This day is coming faster than we think. We don't know when the Lord will return. Don't get hung up on end time scenarios. It is really honestly a waste of time. Here's why. You're, you're thinking about things that the Lord has not revealed to you yet. Only the Lord knows the time and the day. The, the way you want to invest your time is what can I do to participate fully in the Lord among His people as that day approaches? Will there be a rapture? Yeah, you have no idea really what it's going to be. So don't come up with scenarios that, that purport to tell people exactly what a rapture means. Don't get hung up on premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. Just say very clearly, Maranatha, Lord, come. And I know he will. And I will be prepared. I will be prepared. Why? Because I'm living fully in the present with the Lord, anticipating this glorious future, knowing it could come any minute. But in the meantime, I'm focusing on him and his purposes for me and his church right now. Because on that day, when it does come, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It will be the most intense day of our life when the day arrives. It will reveal where we are with God all the days beforehand. Some will be weeping in joy, others will be weeping in regret. I can tell you this with the fullest assurance and the authority of God's word. You will have no regrets to be in Christ. On that day, you will have no regrets if you are in Christ. Because when you make your confession of faith that Jesus is Lord, it's, com it's coming out of a, a heart, a life, a mind that's been walking with him in relationship all the days of your life. And so there's no reason to cringe and worry about this day approaching. We, we, we anticipate this approaching day with great anticipation. It'll be tears of joy for sure. But it'll be joy. So this is what the church is. What is the purpose of the church? Is to help us experience, to allow us to experience, to equip us to experience and express the joy of the Lord. One day at a time, both now and forevermore. The Lord Jesus, that's my prayer for me, for my brothers and sisters. And so, Lord, I pray that as we open ourselves to being restored and renewed, uh, that would include our relationship with you and your people, the church. This movement of your spirit over which you are the Lord. So, Lord, I pray that that would be my heart and the heart of my brothers and sisters, that together as we come into relationship with you and with one another, we would be the church. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and reflect his glory. May the Lord give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.